Acts chapter 7 this evening, Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we come here now to chapter 7. Remember in chapter 6 that Stephen, one of the seven deacons that had appointed, he uh, was in the city of Jerusalem and he began to share the scriptures and uh, the gospel concerning Jesus in what is obviously Jerusalem, a very, very uh, Jewish environment. Uh, I'm inclined to believe that he was teaching on the streets and publicly and, and these uh, Jewish uh, leaders and scholars from the synagogue of the freedmen there in Jerusalem began a discussion with him and a theological discussion obviously centered upon Jesus and uh, they were uh, unable to uh, answer him in terms of the case that he laid uh, for uh, Christ, as we're told in the passage in verse uh, 10. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he uh, spoke. So unable to um, uh, win a, a theological argument, and not just an argument for argument's sake, but a very, very important theological argument, the highest, of course, and that is, what do we think of Jesus? What do we think of God's Son in His place? Having lost that argument now, they do exactly what they had done uh, mere months or mere uh, years earlier uh, to Jesus. Having been unable to confound him in any way. He silenced them repeatedly. Now they resorted to false accusations against Jesus, against Stephen, as they did with Jesus. Now an attempt to, uh, to get done with him and be done with him in that way. And they accused him specifically of blasphemy. And uh, they falsely accused him of blaspheming the law of Moses. Uh, blaspheming God the Father himself and blaspheming the temple. And in their minds, as they're endeavoring to lay this case, however false it might be, clearly they're intending uh, to find him guilty of blasphemy uh, under the law of Moses so that they can then mete out uh, the death penalty that they will end end up meeting out here in the end of the chapter, and that is to be rid of Stephen by means of, of stoning, of killing uh, him. And so they're in this setting, and it's a gathering of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the 70, 71 uh, most influential Jewish officials in the entire world, uh, 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 the, the authoritative voice uh, of, uh, uh, in terms of religious leaders of the Jewish people, and they have, brought, they have brought Stephen in before them for a trial, which is essentially a trial related to uh, blasphemy. So the charges have been laid out, and then the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? And so he invites here, as was the case in any kind of a court of law, even a religious court of law, uh, he invites Stephen in to make uh, his defense against these charges that have been raised uh, against him. And Stephen begins that defense, and, he, and it will run all the way through uh, verse 53. We'll order pizzas in a little bit later uh, this evening. It won't be. It's a, 
it's a, it's a history lesson of the Jewish people, but the point that he's making through uh, all of this is that he is informing his very religious audience here that they had a long history of failing to recognize the deliverers that God sent to them the first time and only ended up recognizing those deliverers the second time. And it's obviously a reference that is being made concerning Jesus, that they have missed Jesus in his first coming, the greatest deliverer uh, that the Father's ever provided to mankind, and, and they have completely missed him in his first coming. But as the scriptures teach, they will get it at his second coming. But this one isn't something that's unique to Jesus. It's something that was a pattern that was a part of their lives that they failed to recognize these deliverers. Every time God wanted to bless the children of Israel uh, through these people that he would send into their history, uh, they would uh, fight against it and just as they did with Jesus, but they had a long uh, history of that. And so uh, being the, the, given the fact that this is now a legal proceeding that we find ourselves in the middle of, uh, Stephen essentially proceeds to call four witnesses from the Old Testament to the witness stand uh, in that, in that uh, court of, of, of uh, Jewish law and to testify on his behalf uh, in, in terms of disproving these accusations that are being made against him. And so he will call Abraham to the witness stand from Genesis. He will call Joseph to the witness stand from Genesis. He will call uh, Moses to the witness stand from the book of Exodus and, and beyond. And then Solomon to the witness stand uh, as, uh, uh, as witnesses to um, the, his faith in Christ and driving home this point that uh, it's not me that's wrong concerning Jesus, it is you that's wrong concerning Jesus, and you folks make a, uh, a nasty habit of doing this, and you always uh, have. Well, the first thing he does in, in verses 1 through 8 is uh, he brings Abraham through the Scriptures to the witness stand. And here he's going to lay a foundation uh, for his case, this case that they always miss the deliverer the first time and only caught on the second time. Uh, he's going to lay the foundation of that through the father of the nation of Israel, and that is Abraham. That's why he's called Father Abraham. And he said, brethren and fathers, uh, listen. I mean, the politeness is, uh, is um, educational in that kind of, of an environment. And, and, and the, the respect for authority. Brethren and fathers, listen. The, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham, God the Father, when he was in Mesopotamia, just a pagan, uh, just worshiping all of the gods that were being worshipped in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And God said to him, get out of your country and from your relatives there and come to a land that I will show you. And then Abraham came out of the land of the Chaldeans and he dwelt in Haran. And then from there, when his father was dead, 
He moved, uh, God moved Abraham from that halfway point of getting to the promised land and, and brought Abraham uh, to dwell in, in the land of Israel in which you now uh, dwell. And we remember this historical account from Genesis. And God gave him no inheritance in, in the land. Uh, not even enough to set his foot on. So God gave him the promise of the land, but he never came uh, in his lifetime to possess that land. He had the promise of it, but, uh, but it, it, he didn't possess it. And so he, uh, God the Father promised to give it to him for possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would, be, uh, that he, they would uh, bring them into bondage, the people of this foreign land, and oppress them for 400 years. And so God spoke to Abraham of the fact that the children of Israel would go into bondage to a, a foreign people, a pagan people. This speaks of their uh, 400 year or so um, uh, uh, being held in bondage in Egypt and God spoke to them that that was going to happen and a nation verse 7 to whom they will be in bondage then I will judge says the Lord and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place so when God speaks to Abraham and uh, um, uh, he's, he is a, a very small group of, of people. He's just a family. He's a, he's a small clan. He has no ability at all to possess the land of Israel. I mean, there, there are millions and millions of Jews uh, in Israel today, and they live constantly under the threat of of being shoehorned out of their land. That's not going to happen, but, but that's the threat. It takes a large population base to occupy it with peace and, and, and harmony uh, a large piece of land. And, and they didn't have that yet. And so uh, God uh, took uh, a a Abraham and then uh, 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 Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob through, through his sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, the patriarchs of Israel. And during that 400 years in which uh, they end up at the time uh, of Jacob coming into the land of, of Egypt, they go from being about 72 people in um, uh, in number, uh, they would have been readily slaughtered if they showed up and said, this is our land and we're going to take it. And these are not, 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 there, are not, there are not nice people all the time in human history. And they certainly weren't nice in, in the land. That's why God was going to displace them. So God took them into that captivity in Egypt until they come out and they number including men and women and, and children, somewhere in the vicinity probably of about uh, three million people. And so now the promise can move forward. And then God gave to Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac, his son, circumcised him on the day, and Isaac begot Jacob. And then Jacob uh, uh, begot uh, the 12 patriarchs of the 12 sons that became uh, the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so here he uh, speaks through uh, Abraham here, and uh, he declares 
that the whole nation of uh, Israel the, the, it had been birthed in faith. It had been birthed in faith, Abraham's faith. Uh, Abraham believed God's commandment, and, uh, and he obeyed God's commandment. Uh, he, he progressed forward on the basis of faith. And now, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, and God calls the children of Israel to live by faith in God's Word concerning Him as the Messiah, they're unwilling to do what their great patriarch was willing to do, uh, even concerning a far lesser thing than, than the Messiah. And so with that, Stephen uh, essentially uh, says to uh, uh, Abraham here, uh, thank you, Father Abraham, you can leave the witness stand. And the defense, having uh, mentioned the 12 patriarchs, now wishes to call our next witness, and that is Joseph from the book uh, of Genesis. And so he calls his second witness Joseph in verses 9 through 16, again to make the point that uh, the Jewish people had a long history of failing to recognize the deliverers the first time that God sent to them. And, and here uh, in earnest, he heads into that point by focusing on uh, Joseph. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, they sold Joseph uh, into Egypt, but God was with him. And so that's a wonderful encapsulation of quite a few chapters in the book of Genesis. Genesis. He has quite a gift for teaching here. And uh, so remember the brothers of Joseph, they were envious of him, his relationship that he had with his father, and so they sold him into bondage, and he ends up uh, in prison, he ends up in Potiphar's house, and he ends up uh, one day becoming the second most powerful man in the world next to Pharaoh. But this is how it happened. He was sold into Egypt, but we see here the phrase that he pulls out that is all the way, runs like a, a thread all the way through uh, the book of Genesis through all the things that Joseph went through is that the Lord was with him. And that is the determining factor in any situation uh, in our lives. And, uh, and the Lord delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. And so on one day, Remember, Joseph goes from being in a prison. Somebody comes in and says, Pharaoh wants to see you. He shaves his beard and cuts his hair and whatever else is required in order to stand before Pharaoh. And before the day is over, he is second only to Pharaoh in terms of authority uh, in, in Egypt because a famine uh, had been uh, prophesied uh, through a dream that God had, uh, that Joseph uh, interpreted. Great trouble was going to come over the land uh, of Egypt. The long famines uh, uh, would be include Egypt and uh, Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. So remember that they saved the grain for seven years because there were seven uh, years of famine and the fat lean cows and the fat cows and so forth, uh, the famine that was going to come. And so Joseph was over uh, all of that. But when Jacob, and Jacob uh, was in the land of Canaan while his son uh, Joseph was uh, there in Egypt, he still assumes that his, his, you might remember that his, his son is dead because that's what his brothers told the father. 
and uh, it's a wonderful Father's Day gift or however they work that out in their mind. And so uh, Jacob, he heard uh, in the midst of the famine that gripped Canaan as he was there, that there was grain in Egypt. And so he sent out our fathers first. So here, remember, he sent his sons to go to Egypt now, buy grain, that we don't die as a result of this famine. And then with the death of, of Jacob and, and uh, uh, is one of the great patriarchs of Israel uh, and the bloodline, the whole plan of God for man's redemption would die with them also. And so uh, he, he sent out our fathers first and they went there to Egypt, you remember, they bought the grain, they came back to Jacob, uh, and then they ate the grain, and then uh, the famine didn't go on for a few months or a year or two, it was going to go on for seven years, so they ran out of the food that they had, the, the grain that they had bought to eat, and then you, you notice the next phrase in verse 13, and the second time, Joseph was made known to his brother, brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. They did not recognize Joseph the first time that they came. The second time they came for grain, then Joseph revealed himself to them, and they only recognized him uh, the, second uh, the, the second time, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all of his relatives to him, 75 uh, people, and Jacob went down to Egypt. He moved into there uh, from Canaan. He died, he and our fathers, 400 uh, in, uh, plus years uh, in, in uh, Egypt, quite a few generations of Jewish people, and then they carried back uh, to Shechem, and uh, they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, uh, the father of uh, Shechem. And so, here in the same way, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, the Jewish people as a whole, they re uh, rejected Jesus at his first coming and uh, rejected him as their deliverer, rejected them uh, as, as their savior, but they will recognize him uh, belatedly, but it will still happen uh, at his uh, second coming, their second exposure to him, uh, just as was the case uh, with, with Joseph. And so, uh, just as the patriarchs had rejected God's choice of Joseph to rule over them, to bow down before them, uh, the Jewish people had done the same thing to, uh, uh, to God's choice of Jesus as their uh, Messiah. They rejected Joseph, and, uh, and they rejected Joseph because of envy, the brothers did. And uh, as we're told there in, in verse 9, and uh, uh, that's the reason that they had done that. Joseph brings it out. I mean, uh, Stephen brings it out in the sermon. This was their motivation. They rejected him the first time, and, and they did so out of the motivation. Not a good reason for rejecting Christ, but out of uh, jealousy. And so they would have uh, maybe perhaps begun it even early in this part of the, the sermon, begin to understand, uh, I think I'm getting, we're getting hints of Jesus here because clearly the Gospels revealed to us that they were aware, and certainly Jesus was aware, of the fact that their rejection of him was not for good reason, but for envy. They were afraid of his power, and they were afraid of his 
uh, his uh, popularity. And so, uh, again, in rejecting Jesus, they were just continuing their very long history of persecuting uh, men God had chosen as their deliverers. And so, uh, in essence, Stephen says now, Joseph, you may now uh, leave uh, the witness stand here, and uh, we thank you, and the the defense now wishes to call our next uh, witness uh, from the Pentateuch, from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I'd like to call Moses to the stand. And so he does in verses 17 to 43. And, and declaring of Moses, but when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham uh, that the, the, the people would be delivered out of this bondage in Egypt, uh, the people grew and they multiplied in Egypt till another king or another Pharaoh arose who did not know Joseph. So you've got a 400-year gap there. Clearly, uh, this is a, 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 a Pharaoh who has no, probably any uh, real clear uh, remembrance of anything related to, to Joseph unless he was a, a history buff. And this man dealt treacherously with our people and, he, uh, and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. And so we remember in Exodus, the decree that was given by Pharaoh, threatened by uh, the number, uh, the, the, uh, the, the birth rate and the proliferation of new children uh, and the population of the Jewish population in their midst, concern about it being a, a destabilizing uh, factor within, the, uh, within their population. And so he ordered that all male uh, Jewish children would be killed at birth by, uh, by the, uh, the midwives. And so at this time, Moses was born in the middle of this great crisis, and he was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up uh, in his father's house for three months. And so uh, Moses' parents raised him for three months, and trying to keep him quiet, trying to keep him quiet. Nobody discovers him. If they discover him and it's a boy, then they're going to kill him. I mean, what kind of a place is this to put a parent? But this is what was going on in, in, uh, in, in Egypt. And then finally they realized they can't keep this a secret. And so he was set out in that uh, that small kind of ark of, uh, made up of, of sticks and, and pitch so that it could float, put inside of that, put out onto the, the bank there of the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter, as she was bathing, uh, heard him, took note of him, and then took, her, uh, took Moses home and brought him up as her own son. And Moses then was learned, or he became learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and uh, was mighty in words and deeds. Now, when Moses was 40 years old, uh, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. So he's being raised in this um, purely um, Egyptian culture and language and education but he knows this slave population within the borders, that that's his bloodline. These are his people. So he goes out from the palace and he's going to examine how it is that the, his people are being uh, treated at the hands of, of the Egyptians. 
and then seeing one of his brethren uh, suffer uh, wrong, uh, an Egyptian uh, beating one of the Jewish uh, servants for no reason uh, at, uh, at all, uh, Moses then stood up and he defended uh, his brother and then he avenged him who was oppressed and he struck down the uh, Egyptian. And uh, I like the discreetness of um, <laughs> Stephen's language. Uh, Moses killed the guy <laughs> and, then, and then buried him in the sand. And that's what he did. And, and he did that supposing that his brethren, his fellow Jews, would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand. Uh, but they did not understand. So at 40 years of age, Moses encounters the Jewish people as a deliverer, uh, expecting them to understand uh, this call upon his life. And at his first coming, uh, they were completely oblivious to it. And the next day, he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, two Jews fighting one another. He tried to reconcile them saying, men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? And, uh, and then he who, uh, but he who did his brother wrong pushed him away saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You want to kill me the way you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And we remember now, Moses realizes that this is, this is common knowledge now. It's only going to be a matter of time before Pharaoh hears about this and, and, uh, and I'll be uh, killed as a result of it. And then he flees from uh, from, uh, from the land of Egypt. And then at this saying, Moses fled, became a, dwell, a dweller in the land of Midian, uh, where he had two sons. And then when 40 years had passed, now here's his second coming. Uh, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, in a bush, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. And when Moses saw that burning bush, he marveled at the sight and he drew near to observe it. And uh, here you have out in the middle of the wilderness, you have uh, a, a bush that is burning, and yet it's not being consumed. And, uh, and, and Moses had attempted uh, to uh, burn for God 40 years earlier, and he had ended up a pile of ashes in 24 hours. So this is a marvel to him. They have to remember, in those days, shepherds, uh, didn't have uh, Mercedes-Benzes, and they didn't have uh, cable TV. So uh, there wasn't that much that, if anything was, any unusual thing happened, it, it was a welcome break from pure monotony. So here you have a bush that is burning, and yet it's not consumed. So he's going to go, and he's going to investigate, which is exactly... Uh, what he did, and as he marveled at the sight, drew near to observe, uh, not only was this a burning bush that wasn't consumed, but it was a talking bush in the sense that God then spoke to him from the midst of that burning bush saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. And then the Lord said to him, take your sandals off for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and, and have come down to deliver them. 
and, uh, and now come, I will send you to Egypt. They didn't recognize Moses as their deliverer at his first coming. They will recognize him at the second coming. And this Moses whom uh, they rejected, uh, Stephen uh, says, uh, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to uh, be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared uh, to him in the bush. In other words, um, uh, if you think in rejecting Jesus as your Messiah and as the Savior of the world, um, you're going to get a different choice one day. You're wrong. That's the Messiah. That's the Savior of the world. That is never going to change. You're going to need to change. And your attitude will change uh, at His, uh, at his uh, second uh, coming. And this Jesus... Uh, and this, uh, 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 again, verse 35, Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of, uh, of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And so they didn't get it the first time. And, uh, and so they've got to take the class again. Uh, they've got to take the Jesus is your Messiah class again. Uh, because nothing has changed about the content of that class. And, and, uh, uh, and so Moses will come and, and be the deliverer, though they rejected him the first time. And he brought them out, the great exodus, after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness uh, 40 years. And this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from uh, your brethren, him you shall uh, hear. And so Moses himself prophesied by the Holy Spirit of a deliverer, of a, a, a prophet who would come, and speaking of the Messiah who would be like him uh, to the nation of, uh, of Israel. And, uh, and so even Moses prophesied of, of Jesus as the Messiah. And this is he who was in the congregation Ill, in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles given to us. That is the law whom our fathers would not obey but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. And so uh, here he's going to bring out the fact that uh, make them uh, face the, the, the fact of the fact that their history was a very long history of rebellion uh, against uh, God. And, uh, and so you remember when they came out and Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai in order to get the law and uh, everybody said, what happened to Moses? This guy, what is it? You know, and, he's, and he's up there praying and he's meeting with the Lord and everything. And, and, uh, and so Aaron gets the idea of, of molding a golden calf. How about that? Uh, Moses' brother, and he said, make us, uh, they said to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. We want a God you can see. And uh, as for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become uh, of him. Fairly, thank, uh, fairly thankless congregation. <laughs> really, they were a rough congregation. 
Uh, I think they make uh, the church at Corinth look like uh, the nicest people in the world in terms of uh, trying to, uh, to lead them. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and uh, rejoiced in the works of their own hands. And then God uh, turned as they worshiped that golden calf. God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you uh, offer me uh, uh, slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and and were involved in the worship of him, the star of your God, uh, Repham, and images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away to Babylon. And so uh, even though God had, uh, they came to recognize Moses for for who he was uh, throughout their history in constant rebellion uh, against, uh, against God. And so uh, here they are. They are accusing uh, Stephen of blaspheming Moses. He's done nothing of the sort. And he says, let me remind you of your treatment of Moses. And I can build a case, not from hearsay, of people that you lack integrity, that you got to come forward with these false accusations. I'll lay my case from the Scriptures in terms of uh, you pretend to have this great high view of the law and the great high view of Moses, and, and you never did have a high view of him, and you don't have a high view of him except when it's convenient to you. And then when it's inconvenient to you, you rebel against the law that God uh, gave to him. Was that the start of applause? Is everybody okay right there? I'm just just kidding. I'm a little bit distracted, easily distracted. And so it wasn't Moses that wasn't, uh, Stephen that wasn't taking Moses seriously. Uh, They were the ones not listening to Moses. And so then uh, Stephen finally calls his fourth witness there in verse 44, and that is King Solomon, the son uh, of uh, David. And he kind of shifts gears here a little bit to address their accusation against him of speaking against the temple. And, uh, and so he says, our father had the tabernacle. That was that tent of worship, tent of meeting place, kind of a temporary thing that could move through the wilderness and the, and the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And uh, it was, uh, they had that tent of witness uh, as God appointed. God had instructed Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. God had given to, it to him, which our fathers, having uh, received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David. And so Israel continued to not, not only worship God in this kind of a portable tent, very elaborate, very beautiful, 
um, but uh, uh, tent, uh, the, the uh, tent of meeting with God. But after they came into the land, there was no temple built immediately. Uh, they came into the land and they continued to meet with God at this, in this, this tabernacle all the way until the, uh, the days of, of David, a very long period of time. And David, who found favor before God, and uh, he asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. And so God, David looked at uh, how God was blessing the nation, how God was blessing Jerusalem, how God was blessing David's life, the palace that he got to, to live in. And he thought to himself, I, I, I live in this beautiful palace, and we're still worshiping God in a tent. And it just didn't seem right to him. And so he made the proposal uh, through Nathan, got his feedback on it, on building a temple, something in Jerusalem, uh, founded in the ground, immovable as a place, a permanent place to worship uh, the Lord. And of course, the Lord uh, was okay with the idea, uh, but he wouldn't let, he wouldn't let Mo, uh, David built it because of so much blood on his hands with the wars, but Solomon built him, that is the Lord of house, built the temple. Uh, and however, so here's the qualifier, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands as the prophet says. And God declaring, heaven is my home, the earth is my footstool. What house, what temple will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all of these things? And so he reminds them uh, of the fact that God never asked for a temple. Uh, he allowed a temple to be built, but he never said, boy, I'm dying to have a temple. I really want a temple. I hate this, uh, this tabernacle thing that communicates God's people being strangers and pilgrims in the land and all of these good things. I want something that is, you know, physical in nature that is worthy of me. And, and, uh, and God never came and said, David, I want you to do it. Oh, no, not you. I'm going to have Solomon do it because of the blood that is, uh, is on your hands. And uh, you might remember that uh, uh, here they are so concerned and zealous for, uh, for uh, the temple here and accusing Stephen of, of blaspheming uh, the temple. And uh, Stephen reminds them uh, that God never asked for it. He didn't ever care supremely about the temple. What he cared about was the heart of the people who came into the temple. That's what he cared about. And the temple, apart from the heart of the people uh, loving him in spirit and in truth, the temple meant nothing to him. It was just another stone uh, structure in human uh, history. And so he reminds them uh, of that. Even Solomon, as he dedicated uh, the, the first temple, he warned the people not to turn the temple into an idol. Don't. Don't do what people have a tendency to do, and that is to begin to worship the temple rather than worshiping the God. Uh, that, uh, and, and this was the very thing they were doing in rejecting Jesus as uh, Messiah and elevating the temple and the reputation of the temple above even how they treated the Son of God when He came into the world to provide salvation. 
And so Solomon had made that speech, that declaration to the assembled masses at the dedication of the temple and uh, told them plainly that uh, the Most High God cannot be confined to the precincts of any, uh, any building. In fact, the very uh, temple that they were so proud of in Stephen's day uh, was not even Solomon's temple. God had destroyed uh, Solomon's temple and, uh, and destroyed it uh, in Jerusalem at the hands of the Babylonians for precisely this reason. The people cared, they only cared about the temple. They cared more about the temple than they cared about the God of the temple and their own hearts before that God. And God said, you got the whole thing backwards and you've had it that way for hundreds of years. I'm going to remove the distraction. I'm going to allow the Babylonians to take it down, every stone of it and take you into Babylonian captivity to drive home the point that this is about a relationship between you and me. And, he, and this is what Stephen is driving home uh, to them. And uh, one of the fascinating things about Abraham and Joseph and Moses, these three great men from Israel's history, is that each of them had a relationship with God without a temple. And these men that Stephen is talking to, uh, they had a temple, but they had no relationship with God. And, and he is uh, letting them uh, know that. And so Stephen says, in effect, thank you, King Solomon. You may leave the witness stand. The defense now wishes to enter into its closing remarks. And so he closes this sermon in verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. There wasn't a person in that room that was thinking to themselves, what do you mean by that? I mean, this is a real gift for clarity here. There's the old joke, forgive me if I've used it recently, I forget whether it was in the morning or in an evening service, but... There's the old joke about sermons that if there were a poison, they couldn't kill anyone. And if they were a medicine, they couldn't help anyone. And here is Stephen. He's not going to deliver one of those messages. And nobody should deliver a message uh, that has to do with Jesus Christ and the Bible and the God of the Bible in, in that kind of a way. And he doesn't. And so he drives home the fact, you are stiff-necked. I have laid down. You're rebellious against God. You know your own history. We know the history because here we are in the book of Acts having begun in Genesis. And you look at that whole history and it goes, how many ways can these people find to rebel against God? Except that we then recognize ourselves in them and the same tendencies which keeps us humble in all of it in order to learn from, from them. But they were always a handful for God. They were never the bargain that these Jewish religious leaders thought they were to God and to God's people. None of us are. 
And, uh, and so uh, he, he tell, told them, uh, God came over and over and over again, and uh, you were stiff-necked, you were unwilling uh, to bow your head to God, uh, and, and even to God you were unwilling to do that. And when he calls them uncircumcised in, in uh, heart and ears, circumcision was a, a, was a covenant that God made uh, through Abraham with the Jewish people, and it represented the cutting away of the, the flesh uh, around the human heart. And, uh, and, and so uh, here he talks about the fact that uh, the, the, the f- their, their eyes, uh, their, uh, their heart, their ears, all of them were completely dominated by the flesh. You are uncircumcised in heart and uh, ears. You've got this whole outside, outward kind of thing going, but your heart, your lives uh, are untouched and still dominated by, uh, by the flesh. And then, as he declared also in verse 51, you persecuted uh, every single prophet that God sent to you. And you look at it. You look at uh, Jeremiah. You look at um, Isaiah. You look at Ezekiel. You just go right down through the list. And uh, what happened to each of them? They all became fabulous wealthy uh, through their prophetic ministry and had private jets and uh, houses in several cities around the world. And no, no, no. Their worst enemies in the world were not the Philistines or the Moabites, or any group of pagans. The greatest danger to these men was God's people themselves. And and he just reminds them of the history. Remember how you treated every prophet that God uh, uh, sent to you to speak to you many things, but supremely of the coming of Messiah and the description uh, uh, of, of him. And then uh, there in, in, uh, in uh, uh, verse 52, which of the prophets did your prophets not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one Messiah, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. You killed those prophets. You mistreated all of those prophets in the Old Testament. Your fathers that you're so proud of. And, and uh, without looking, uh, learning from their lives. And, and if your fathers were shameful in their treatment of the prophets, you have topped them because you have murdered the Messiah. That's your legacy in history. The Messiah of whom these prophets uh, spoke their responsibility uh, before, uh, before God in this regard. And then he declares in verse 53, uh, you who have received the law by the direction of angels and you have not kept it. And so they accused uh, Stephen of blaspheming the law of Moses, of breaking uh, the law of Moses. And he says, you're the ones that have no regard for the law of Moses. And, and in that, that moment, that, that closing statement of that sermon, I mean, you wish you could be a fly on the wall, right, in history? Or if you've ever been in a room where something happens and it's like, 
whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm not here. I'm, you know, this is so intense and so heavy. And what Stephen has done is he's turned the whole trial on its head. And the Sanhedrin, they know that that's happened. And they've gone from being the ones that have put him on trial, and it's clear before the entire courtroom that he has now put them on trial on the basis of, uh, of uh, the Word of God. He has established them to be guilty of every single thing they accused him falsely uh, of being guilty of. And so uh, with that, he finished his sermon. He has said everything that he feels like he's supposed to say uh, by the Holy Spirit. And it's important to recognize that when, when he declares this message to them, the tone of it wasn't, you know, his eyes bulging out of his head or anything like that. When they stone him, he's going to pray for their forgiveness to the Father. He loves them. And what it is that he's declaring to them, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? The kisses of an enemy are deceitful, the Bible says. He loves them enough to tell them uh, the, the truth here. Well, the reaction of the Sanhedrin to the sermon is in verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. I don't know if you've ever been cut to the heart. Doesn't sound fun. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. And the word, uh, the, the cut to the heart, it, it means they were sawn asunder. They were uh, so deeply convicted at what Stephen had said uh, to them, uh, they understood it. They got exactly what he was saying uh, to them. So the response is not going to be out of a misunderstanding. They understand what it is that he's, he's saying. I mean, I, I, I think that typically we like to think that when somebody comes under deep conviction, it's going to bring uh, repentance and remorse and humility, and they're going to be down on their knees before God. All of that uh, depends on the heart of the person who's been cut to the heart. Now, there's a certain kind of person who gets convicted or cut to the heart in this way, and, uh, and it produces rage. And uh, that tells you how far away uh, the hearts of these men were, uh, by and large, from God uh, in, that, in that setting. And they became so upset with Stephen, we're told, that, they, that there, were, they, there was the physical reaction, I mean, just almost involuntary here, of gnashing their teeth. And so their faces contort, uh, they begin to grind their teeth in this kind of uncontrollable rage directed toward, uh, toward Stephen. They're making some kind of guttural sounds here. And you just stop and ask yourself, when is the last time you have been so angry in life that it resulted in you contorting your face and gnashing your teeth? Well, I'm still waiting for that one in my life. I'm not saying I'm not capable of it. But that's going really, really far for these kind of a physical manifestation uh, to a message, a message of truth. 
But again, this is where uh, their, their heart is. This is how far away they are from, from the heart uh, of, uh, of God. And then that wonderful word, but, that, that begins so many verses in, uh, in the Bible, and it means this is a shift of gears here. Forget what's just come before. Now put our focus on something else. But he now, our focus is put completely upon Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit. This is the only explanation we're given for Stephen's conduct happening before this and then his conduct that we're going to be reading about here in these closing verses. And what it speaks to me is I put myself in Stephen's shoes and I think to myself, if I'm in that kind of a setting and this kind of a thing is coming down and this is where people are at gnashing their teeth and, and, and all of this uh, toward me and, and then to look and say, what do I think my reaction might be in that environment? And then I put it up against what I see in Stephen here under the control of the Holy Spirit and I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself, I think to myself, I've got a little ways to go in terms of sanctification and Christ-likeness. And so here he is, the fullness of the Holy Spirit produces what we now read about. And as all of this is happening, he gazes up into heaven, he saw the glory of God the Father, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. God gives him a vision of glory. Sometimes we uh, wonder, Stephen is going to become the first martyr in the history of the church here in just a couple of verses as we read it. Sometimes we can wonder as Christians, as we read about persecution of Christians around the world or persecution of Stephen and others in the, the book of Acts and in the scriptures, and to wonder if I was, if I was in that place where somebody was threatening my life or, or, or to deny Christ or I would die. I would hope that I would be able to stand there, but I'm not sure that I would be able to stand. And if we want to stand, He will give us the grace to do that. He gives Him a vision of the glory of heaven, of the Father and the Son that He had just so wonderfully represented in, in His sermon here he knew this, God knew this uh, great, this death by stoning is going to occur. And so he, he does something in Stephen that is even greater in terms of imparting his glory to him than what he was going to face in just a couple of minutes in, in dying under a, a heap of stones. And the Lord will do it for us as well. So many times in my life I've been where somebody was a friend or a loved one or someone in the congregation and they're, they're on their uh, deathbed and, and uh, hospice has been called in and, and kind of hospice care can occur, you know, begin even uh, weeks prior to, to the end of life. But usually uh, they, they'll come in uh, rather late to control and help control things and help the family and help, um, help the person. And, uh, and there comes that point where um, they can't communicate anymore. And we have no confidence that they're hearing what it is that we're saying to them. 
but all the way down for a Christian, all the way down in their spirit, we have the confidence that God is meeting with them there in a way that we can't see and that we can't understand. But He is taking care of them in that place as they're moving from this world uh, to, to the life uh, to come. And so He looks up and He sees uh, all of this glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God that represents the, uh, the presence of God. He sees Jesus standing. And this is unusual here as, as Stephen declares that, and, and Luke declares that that's what Stephen saw here in the situation because as we read about Jesus' present place in heaven, following His ascension into heaven, and prior to His uh, return to the second coming, He's always seated at the right hand of the Father. And yet Stephen sees him here standing. And there's a lot of opinions about that, a lot of good opinions about that, that um, they stood in honor of this beautiful defense that Stephen had given uh, from the Scriptures. When something outstanding happens, uh, I hope I'm not being sacrilegious in any kind of uh, a way, but people will typically, when, when they're exposed to something that is extraordinary, they'll show their appreciation by standing or, or standing applause. And uh, so it could uh, very well uh, be uh, something like that, certainly um, an expression of Jesus' love and concern for Stephen. In, in that moment and, and uh, a faithfulness uh, to him. And I think also Jesus stood in order to um, receive him in a moment uh, into heaven. So you have these, these songs that talk about when, uh, when a Christian dies and then goes to heaven and there can, there's the old, uh, the old hymn that talks about uh, a band of angels coming for to take me home and that kind of thing. Uh, nothing of the sort will happen. Uh, uh, Jesus declared, let your heart not be troubled. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That, that moment of death, I don't see a band of angels, we see Him uh, bringing us, delivering us into the glory uh, of that, that heavenly, uh, heavenly scene. And so here is Stephen, this beautiful vision that is given to him by God, and then he articulates it to this audience here. I just love it. The beautiful innocence and without guile of, of his relationship with God and his love for this audience. He's not going to keep it to himself. They don't deserve to hear this and know any of it. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus as the Son of God, standing at the right hand of God. And so, as he declares Jesus not only to be the Messiah, but declares him to be the Son of God, that is divine, then they lose it. They cried out with a loud voice, 
and trying to uh, drown out anything else that he would say uh, concerning Jesus in that setting, and then they stop their ears. It's such a mature response uh, to a theological discussion, and, and yet it's what they were forced to resort to because by the time he got done by the Spirit of God dismantling that thing that was going on in that courtroom, that's all that they had left. I, saying their voice, I don't want to hear, I can't hear anything, you're not, we're not listening to what you're saying. They ran at him with one accord, they cast him out of the city of Jerusalem, and they stoned him, probably in the place of, uh, of uh, stoning or the place of capital punishment uh, in Jerusalem, that is Calvary. Uh, that was the, the site at which execution occurs. Most often, this is under the time of Rome, most often by, uh, by crucifixion, but they take him out and they, they cast him out of the city, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul, and they stoned uh, Stephen. And so uh, here is the stoning they, that they uh, brought to him, the cap, means of capital punishment under the law uh, of Moses. All of it is completely illegal under Roman law. Uh, Rome kept the right of capital punishment solely to themselves and did not uh, yield that in any way to the nations that they occupied. And, and so they go against uh, the Roman law here. We wonder why in the world did they uh, get away with it? There's a couple uh, uh, explanations possible. Uh, there's a period in, in A.D. 36, just after uh, Pontius Pilate was dismissed from his uh, position there as a Roman official in Jerusalem and in Israel, where there was no effective Roman rule for a short period of time. And so maybe the martyrdom of Stephen took place at that uh, at that time. Another explanation is that this took the Roman forces by a surprise pilot whose uh, headquarters would have been on the seaside at, at Caesarea and except during the feast had no opportunity to react to something that was happening uh, so quickly. But uh, but here, the religious leaders, they take him out, and whatever the consequences might be uh, uh, from Rome, uh, they decide to risk those consequences. As the old saying goes, uh, better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. And that's exactly what they do here in the stoning of Stephen. So they stoned him, and they stoned him as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Echoes of Calvary, right? Uh, Jesus crying out to the Father for the Father to receive. And, and then he knelt down and, uh, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Again, again another mark of Christ's likeness from Calvary when Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. And when he had said this, he fell uh, asleep. And so finally, he's in that kneeling position. The final stone comes that hits his body. And uh, in that uh, instant in time, he moves from that body, that scene, right outside of the city of Jerusalem, and uh, he enters into uh, the glory uh, of, of heaven. 
And uh, as we're told here in this, uh, in, in this description of the clothing being handed to a man, young man by the name uh, of, of Saul, uh, this was none other than the man who would become uh, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, uh, later on in the book of Acts, Acts 22, verse 20, uh, when he, uh, Saul, uh, Paul was at that scene and he never forgot that scene. And he declared, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. And he said it to his shame, uh, but he said it to the glory of God's grace and saving him despite his participation in that entire uh, scene. And so here you have Stephen, and certainly we see in Stephen anything in life that is worth living for genuinely worth living for, is worth dying for. And there are many things that fit into that category, but a relationship with God and our Christian witness is one of those things. If it's worth spending my life investing in, living for it, then it is worth dying for, and God would give us the grace to do that if He calls us uh, to that. And so with Stephen, the first martyr of the early church, and now we have 2,000 years in running martyrs, Christian martyrs uh, in, uh, in human history, unwilling to recant their faith or deny Jesus as, uh, as the Messiah. And only God knows, but surely it has happened. All over the world today, Brothers and sisters, just like us and like Stephen, have given their lives for what they believe in concerning uh, Jesus Christ. I love the passage in the book of Hebrews that describes that kind of person who is willing to live for God, willing to die for God if necessary, and that great hall of faith, even talking about Old Testament saints, and the Holy Spirit described them as being of whom the world was or is not worthy. What a wonderful privilege it is to be in the body of Christ, to be a part of a spiritual family like this, with people like this, not just in Modesto, not just in the United States, but all around uh, the world. And as we look at Stephen and we see the kind of family that we've been born into, it's inspiring for us. It's humbling in our lives and gives us just that great sense of privilege, not only to know Jesus as Savior, but to be able to walk with him and grow in him with one another. Stephen's all around the world, all day, every day. Really beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer.